today's message is entitled, The Sabbath and Atheism. The Sabbath is a very beautiful institution God has given to us. Can you say amen to that? Very interesting. Um, There was actually a video of a Baptist pastor who still is a Baptist pastor who discovered the beautiful truth about the Sabbath from a young person. In fact, you know what he did after he learned these great truths? He actually told his Baptist church, we're going to start worshiping on Sabbath. Very interesting. The entire church all started worshiping on Sabbath. In fact, I have a clip of his testimony, and we're going to attempt to share it, so hopefully the volume's up and you guys are paying attention. And he starts sharing to the point, and this is the part of the video where he starts sharing how... How he came across uh, this uh, Sabbath uh, teaching. So let's see if we can get it started. Doctrinal things. But I was polite as a pastor. So we sat there and we talked and so forth. We didn't argue. I just listened to her and all along thinking, yeah, that's right. She just, she'll learn A 10th grader is talking to him right now. He's telling that part of the But story. I kept looking at the families. And you know what I discovered? That those Adventist families that God planted into our school... Those Adventist families, they loved on me, they cared for me, they gently guided me, they just consistently lived and walked out their faith. And I remember one one time we had a basketball game on a Friday evening. We didn't have a, 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 a charge of the schedule and the game happened to be on a Friday evening. And so one of our very best players was an Adventist uh, student, and his dad came, and we had the Friday, it was a Friday afternoon game, and I noticed that right about uh, 30, 45 minutes before sundown, right in the middle of the game, the dad come, and he took his children, and they left. Yeah. And I took notice of that. I think, why? And I know why he's doing that, because they're going to church. But the thing I'm trying to say is these families was consistent. They loved their God. They believed their message. And they walked in truth. And they did it with love. And then one day, this very man who I was telling you that took his children uh, out of the game, he came to me one day and he said, Pastor Reggie, his name is Guy Jusang, for those of you that might would know him. He said, Pastor Reggie, he said, you know, you and I, we have a great relationship. And we have, his children have been in our school five, six years. And I said, sure. He said, can I talk to you for a moment? I said, sure, come on in. And he said, you know, Pastor, he said, I've got the book that I would like for you to read. He said, now, you know, we've read the book. In my family, we believe the things that are in this book. But, you know, we might have it wrong. We, we might be deceived on something here. Now, buddy, was he, he was setting me up here. Huh? <laughs> setting me up. And he said to me, he said, you know, Pastor, he said, I really appreciate you. You've got a Ph.D. in theology and all that. He said, do you mind reading this book here? And it was the Ten Commandments, twice removed. He said, would you just read the book? And at the end of the book, just uh, tell me what you think about it. And if there's anything wrong with the book, please love me enough to come and tell me so that I can get it right. And boy, he was really stroking that ego thing. Huh? And I said, well, sure, brother, I'll be glad to read that book. And all along, I'm thinking, here's my chance. I'm going to get it straight with these folks. So I took the book, and I read it. I read through this book the first time, and I've got to tell you something. It literally shocked me what I read. I mean to tell you, it shocked me. Even though I had a Ph.D., I'd never learned this before. And I said, well, you know, there's got to be uh, more to this. Maybe I just read it too quickly. And so I decided that I would read the book again. So I read every page. And there it begins sinking in. And I begin thinking, you don't think that maybe I've had it wrong all this time. And I begin learning about Constantine and all the stuff that happened there in the Catholic Church and how that we begin following after that tradition. And then I began thinking, well, maybe I have had it wrong. Let me read it a third time. And so I read it three times. And at the end of the third time, I was so stirred in my heart. I said, I've got to let my wife read this book. And so I took it home and I had not told her that I'd read the book. She didn't know the history that you just now know. I just handed her the book and I said, honey, would you read this book? And just at the end of it, just tell me what you think about it. That's all I said. Just tell me what you think about it. She said, sure. 
And so she read the book. She read it like one night. It was only 128 pages. She just read the book, and I was there. I remember the very moment that she finished the last page because I was waiting to hear what she said. She closed the book, and she looked at me, and I said, what do you think? She said these words. I'm going to quote you verbatim. She said, Reggie, this is a no-brainer. Why aren't we doing this? And I said, honey, I don't know why we're not doing that. Let me read the book again. Yeah. I'm a slow learner. So bottom line is I read this book five times. Five, actually, I've read it more than that, but at that point it was five. I'm telling you, this is the best book I've ever read. This book right here. It's the very best book I've ever read outside the Word of God. Because this book is personal to me, because this book enlightened me to the truth. And so after I read it five times, she and I, we embraced and we said, Dear God, we are so sorry that we have never had this truth before. And for 35 years, I've been teaching people the wrong message. I did it with the right heart, the right attitude, but I had the wrong message. And you know, you can have the wrong message and have it be sweet about it, but it's still wrong. And so I determined, and we determined, that God would have us to make a, a lifestyle change. Someone mentioned that here today. It was a total lifestyle change. It wasn't just changing our day. It was changing our entire lifestyle. Yes. I mean, I at that point decided I'm going to give up my pork chops, my catfish, my shrimp. Yeah, I gave it all up. For the Lord. Yes. Lifestyle change. So we were so excited and happy about this wonderful truth of the Sabbath that we had learned how that it's God's holy day. And he told us to keep it holy. He didn't tell us to make it holy. He did that. So he just said for us to remember it and not forget it and to keep that day set aside and to give ourselves to him that day that he would come and visit with us and he would put a blanket of his love on us and he would make it a sign to us. And so we decided, yes, Lord, we want that in our life. And so we decided we would make this lifestyle change. And she and I were so happy, but we had a church full of folks that didn't know. And we decided, well, we've got to go tell them. So the very next Sunday... The very next Sunday, it was showdown time. And they didn't know what I was about to say, and I didn't know what they was about to say. And I told them. I told them what I've just shared with you. And I didn't know what they were going to do, but I let them know. I said, listen, this is just something that, that God has spoken to me about, to my wife. And we have made a determination and a commitment to God that our lifestyle is changing. Our message is changing. We will honor the Lord. We will keep his Sabbath day holy. And that's the message we're going to begin preaching. And we're going to be uh, changing our worship days to Sabbath day. And if you can join us and you would like to join us, we welcome you. If you can't, we love you anyway. And I didn't know what they were going to say. But praise be unto the name of the Lord, every single person in the church, every one of them, glory to his name. Yes. My, my, thank my God. <laughs> praise his name, folks. Mm. Every single person in the church came to us that night and they said to me, Pastor Reggie, we don't understand all of what you're doing and why you're doing it, but we see the passion in you. We love you. You've been our pastor. We trust you, and we will follow your leadership. And from that Sunday on, we've never met on a Sunday, and we then started meeting on Sabbath. And what we do is that we usher it in. I mean to tell you, it's a celebration for us. It's a celebration. Oh, yes. And I got to tell you something. I know that you, you, you meet on Sabbath morning here. We can't wait that long. No, we can't wait that long. We have to do it at the beginning at sundown Friday night, right when it's Amen. coming in. We say, Lord, we love this day. We love the Sabbath day, Lord. It's your holy day. And it's a celebration under His greatness in our life.
And so our whole church then began to grow in numbers. I thought it was going to shrink, but it grew. And it grew. And I must tell you this, and then my time is up, but you see, we started as a Christian school 14 years ago. I had pastored many years before, and we were starting a school, and I wasn't necessarily intending on attaching a church to that. I was just going to do a Christian school. But we had some families within our school that... Um, started coming uh, to us and, and was not churched in any church and, and they said, hey, could, could we just do a Bible study? And so that pastor thing inside me said, sure. And so we just started a little, a little group, a little Bible study group. And I really wasn't wanting the responsibility of a church again and a school and all of that. And I jokingly said to the pastors around the town, I said, guys, you know, I'm probably the only pastor in town that prays that a church don't grow. You know, and I was joking, but you know what? And I got to tell you this. I was saying that in a joking way, but I found out that that offended the Lord. And one day the Holy Spirit just sort of thumped me right here on the chest. And he said, Reggie, I don't ever want you to say that again because it's not your church. The church belongs to Jesus. And he said, and I want it to grow. And I stopped saying that and I said, Lord, let this church grow. And when I started, uh, when my wife and I and our church started receiving Sabbath and honoring Sabbath day and started worshiping and getting it right and, and following the message the best that we know how, and we still probably don't have it all right, but our heart is we're going to do right. And you know what? As we started doing that, then that church started swelling and growing. And our little old sanctuary, it's not as big as it, but it's going to be. Oh, it's going to be. It's going to be. Oh, they're coming. Yeah, they're coming. It just spills up, and they just start coming in from all over the place. And you know what? The final thing I want to say to you is thank you. You know, people are hungry for the truth, and you've got the truth. This denomination has the truth. And thank God for the Adventist, how that the Lord has used the Adventist church to take me and to help me understand revelation. You've lived your life consistently, and I, even though I don't know you personally, I know how people look at you, how the Christian world looks at you, how that we look down upon you. Uh, you I don't anymore, but how I used to look down upon you. And, uh, and just thinking, you know, you just got this thing wrong, and you're caught, and you're crazy, and all. I used to say those things. And boy, didn't God do a good thing, put me right in the middle of you here, huh? Glory to his name. So God bless you. Thank you. And bless the name of the Lord. He's a good God. Happy Sabbath. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Praise the Lord. Now, you probably noticed why there was a lot of people dressed in white. Those were people who were getting baptized in that church. Praise God. Amen. There should never be an empty pew. We're all looking over here. Thank you, Royce, for your example. I appreciate it. Those angels are surrounding you right now. So God is good. Amen. And there's a lot of people right now who are hungering and thirsting for this beautiful Sabbath truth. Amen. Let's take our Bible. Let's go to the book of Exodus chapter 20. We have a very interesting sermon in store for you, but we're going to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, we are going to the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. All right, let's go to verse 8, everybody. Exodus 20, starting with verse 8. Remember the what? The Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath, the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and what? hallowed it. God has blessed this very special day. And in a world that is full of a lot of frenzy and confusion and chaos, this day is needed like never before. Can you say amen to that? And if God saw that it was needed in a perfect world, how much more in an imperfect world do we need this beautiful institution? In fact, right now, there are various movements that are taking place that are affecting the way the world is. Culture is affected by many of these belief system movements. 
One of them is something called atheism. The word atheism is actually a combination of two words, the word a or alpha in the Greek, and uh, you have the word theos, which simply means no God. And so a movement has developed with this atheistic following. In fact, what's very interesting, nobody ever identified themselves with the English word atheist until the end of the, 17, end of the 1700s and the early part of the 1800s. Something took place during that time that began to really propel the world into this movement called atheism. And you take a good look at what uh, uh, the United States is composed of. In fact, I was looking at some, t some statistics, and they found that this movement is actually growing. In fact, what you see over here, over the course of the last 10 years, you see four individuals. They call themselves the Four Horsemen of Atheism. There you see Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, who actually passed away. And you also see uh, Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris. And they all wrote books that were bestsellers. People were interested in these books. One was called The God Delusion, The End of Faith, God is Not Great, and so on and so on and so on. And from their movement, from their debates, and from many of their venomous speeches, against believers, they begin to just really amass a following that is composed of millions today. Millions today. Now you're thinking to yourself, okay, Anel, I get what's happening. I even have some friends who are atheists, but what in the world does the Sabbath have to do with that? In fact, what you're going to discover from the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White makes several different quotations, about five, and she connects the Sabbath to atheism. In fact, I'll show you them right now. Look what she says right here. It is a constant witness to his greatness, wisdom, and love. Had the Sabbath always been sacredly observed, there could never have been a what? An atheist or an idolater. Look what she says right here. Had the Sabbath always been kept, man's thoughts and affections would have been led to his maker as the object of reverence and worship. And there would never have been a what? idolater, an atheist, or an infidel. Watch what she says right here. If man had always remembered to keep holy the Sabbath, there would never have been an atheist or an infidel in our world. But Satan has made an effort to keep God out of the mind and has worked his plan so as to accomplish this. And having banished God from memory of, the memory of man, he puts himself, if possible, in the place of God and even goes so far as to exalt himself above God in compelling the consciences of men, which God has never done. Had the Sabbath always been kept, there would never have been an idolater, an atheist, or an infidel. The sacred observance of God's holy day would have directed the mind of men, minds of men to their creator, the true living God. Everything in nature also would have brought him to remembrance and, he would, have, and would have borne witness to his power and love." The first quotation, when the foundations of the earth were laid, then, also, then was also laid the foundation of the what? Sabbath. Now that's an extremely important point. In other words, when God created all the interdependent systems of this planet, the Sabbath was not in addition to those systems. The, the Sabbath was actually part of the equation itself. Now that's a very important point. Let's continue. I was shown that if the true Sabbath had been kept, there would never have been an infidel or an atheist. The observance of the Sabbath would have preserved the world from idolatry. When you take a good look at the creation week, when you read Genesis chapter 1, you find an abridged version of creation. Genesis chapter 2, what you find in Genesis chapter 2 is God actually honing in on the most important part of creationism, man and the Sabbath. Now the reason why that is super important for us to understand, as I said earlier, God created this world as a very, like, almost like I appreciate what uh, Brian Snarr was talking about, a clock. And like a clock, there are gears that are connected one to another, and these gears many times are interdependent upon one another. That if something happens to one of these systems, the rest of the entire system is affected and chaos begins to take place. Let me give you an example of this. You take a car engine, right? You take a very, we'll just take something like a, I think that may be a Porsche engine, I'm not quite sure. You take a good look at an advanced diagram. 
Oftentimes, men will actually, um, if they don't know anything about cars, to impress their wives, they'll just walk up to the hood, open it, stare at it, wiggle a few wires. He says, honey, you're going to need to go inside. This is going to take a while. And they call their friends up who are mechanics. You know what I'm talking about? But an engine is very complex. Complex. When you manipulate an engine... After it has come from the manufacturer, and you begin to introduce what something may be called aftermarket parts, the engine itself begins to run less efficiently. So let me give you an example about this. I used to own a Jeep. Anybody remember when I had that big old Jeep? Okay, very good. Okay. I had this big old Cherokee. Uh, Jeep Cherokee 2001 Sport. And it was an inline six. Yeah, it was just, just a good vehicle. Okay. And I had it, it was stock. I had it, with, it was used, but it was still stock. Tires were still stock. Engine was still stock. Everything about the vehicle was still stock. In other words, that's the way it was when it came off the manufacturer. But I decided, since I hung around, hung a lot, hung around a lot of people who were four-wheelers, I decided I was going to be the first Indian four-wheeler out there. And so what I did is I took this Jeep, and some of you guys remember that massacre I had with that Jeep for like a whole week. Me and my buddy were just taking parts out of that Jeep. What we did is we actually replaced part of the suspension. We actually took off those stock tires, replaced those tires with size 36-inch tires. Okay, that's up to here almost, three feet. Okay? And then, you know, there was some manipulation to the engine. And let me just tell you something. It was beautiful because I could just jump off the curb, park anywhere I want, even on top of cars. Now, that never happened. But here's the thing. There was one big downfall. You see, I used to get almost 20 miles to the gallon. I now was getting 15 miles to the gallon. I leave my house, go to church, and have to stop at the gas station. Go home. Leave, stop at the gas station. You see, what I did is by affecting the stock system, it led to inefficiency in the rest of the systems. Does that make sense, yes or no? When you add to an engine aftermarket parts like, say, an air filter, uh, like an aftermarket air filter, what begins to take place is that the engine has to work harder and parts begin to wear out faster. So when God had created this beautiful planet and he created all the interdependent systems, by the removal of the seventh-day Sabbath in the world, it began to lead to a breakdown in other areas. So now we're going to take a good look at history. We're actually going to see this take place. When you take a good look at the early church, you take a good look at all the disciples, and you see all the writings of the disciples... Every one of the disciples was martyred, except for one. His name was John. And John, the disciple, was actually the youngest disciple. But he outlived every one of the other disciples. We don't know exactly how he died. It might have been natural causes. They attempted to dip him in burning oil from extra-biblical sources, but he didn't die. And so they sent him to the island of Patmos, where he had that revelation vision. And it was shortly after that the epistles of John were written. But Paul made a statement because he knew something was happening in the early church. Paul knew that when he was dying off, that savage wolves would be coming into the church. And in the epistles of John, John, the last living disciple, is already fending off many of these false teachers. You see, the devil realized, if I can't persecute them and beat them, I'm going to simply join them. And so take a good look at what Paul says in his words to the Ephesian elders. Also from among yourselves, men, look what he says, from you, he was telling the early church, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And therefore watch and remember that for three years I do not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. 
Paul knew this. And sure enough, when Paul would, you know, was executed, John was still living. And you take a good look at the epistles of John. He is dealing with antichrist. He is dealing with false teachers and false prophets. And what was happening, as the church began to get bigger and bigger and bigger, the God had to deal with the various kinds of leadership that was taking place. And so he was impressing John with very important words. And so John did his best. But shortly after the last disciple died, immediately what began to take place was a lot of heresy. And a lot of evil began to enter into the church. Division took place. You take a good look at the early church fathers and their writings. And you can see the twisted beliefs that began to take place. And it was during this time you had two heresies enter into the church. You had something that was called the removal of the seventh-day Sabbath. In fact, it wasn't just done in Constantine. Constantine was sort of the, the public guy who, who outlawed the keeping of the seventh-day Sabbath and ordered everybody to worship on Sunday, and that's why people today worship on Sunday. But even prior to that, there were some of these apostate teachers who, were still te- who started to teach, it doesn't make a difference what day you worship God. You, need, you can worship God on the day of the sun. And sure enough, there's a bit of truth to that, but the problem is, is that that God has specifically sanctified the seventh day for the crowning act of worship. Can you say amen to that? But what happened was the removal of the Sabbath took place. Something very interesting to note about the Sabbath. The Sabbath draws our minds to creation. Amen? We are drawn to the Creator and all His created works. The Sabbath draws us to the study of the beauty of nature. The Sabbath draws our mind to God's love still revealed in this sinful, marred world. And through the Sabbath, we appreciate the organism of of the physical body of humanity. But when the Sabbath was removed, there began to be placed an emphasis upon the immortality of the soul. A heresy entered in, and that was that your soul was going to live for all of eternity regardless of what you did. And many, much of Greek philosophy entered in during that time to the point where some of the church fathers, they began to say the body is completely evil and it's all about the mind, it's all about the mind. In fact, what began to take place was during the Dark Ages and into the Middle Ages when Catholic theological schools were being set up, they focused so much on theology and that the medical aspect was completely thrown out. They thought that the body was completely evil. That's why many of these monks, when they would try to atone for their sins, they would whip themselves, and they would just starve themselves through fasting. Many of them believed that the earth was going to be completely destroyed, so there's no point in studying nature. In fact, the lost meaning of the seventh day, Siegfried Tonstedt, who's a scholar in Andrews, who was actually down in Loma Linda, but I don't think he's there anymore, he wrote this book, and he talks about the Sabbath in history. Look what he says about the early church. The melody of Christ and his creation was silenced in the Christian church early in its history. Disparagement of the Sabbath, as in the writings of origin, went hand in hand with repudiation of the body and the neglect of the earth. If attention to nature ground almost to a halt, it it was owed in part to the fact that the ideological framework to value nature was lacking. In fact, Ellen White talks about the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. Look what she says in Great Controversy. For centuries, Europe had made no progress in learning, arts, or civilization. A moral and intellectual paralysis had fallen upon Christendom. Siegfried goes a little bit more. Belief in the immortality of the soul was a key factor in the Christian estrangement from the material world. This view led to a diminished interest in nature because concern for the body brings no apparent spiritual benefit. The body is only the prison of the soul. Why explore it? The earth has no place in God's ultimate reality. Why study it? And sure enough, it began to lead to some unusual movements that led to many evils during the Dark and Middle Ages. Thus, the groundwork was laid for a millennium of indifference towards the body and the natural world by the removal of the Sabbath and the focus on the mind and the soul. With time, this outlook resulted in unprecedented helplessness in matters of health and disease. 
People not only lack rudimentary understanding of health and hygiene, they did not take the kind of interest in the physical world that could have led to insight. Let's go on a little bit more. When you take a good look at what was happening in the Middle Ages and, you know, the first part of it known as the Dark Ages. In fact, the Middle Ages used to all be called the Dark Ages, but it was changed by modern-day historians, so they only call the first part of the Middle Ages the Dark Ages. You take a good look at many, many of the medical advances that were taking place. Medical science was actually very much repressed. The way they would deal with their problems was bloodletting. You got issues, you got some type of mental disorder, they take some holy water, alabam, and they would solve the problem, or they thought. And they begin to actually outlaw certain kinds of medical practice. In fact, um, beyond belief, 2,000 years of bad faith, James McDonald, James McDonald wrote a book describing the medical advancements or lack of during the Middle Ages. Look what he says. Some of these words are a little bit more difficult. They're not in English, Indian English vocabulary. In Christendom, from A.D. 300 to around 1700, all serious mental conditions were understood as symptoms of demonic possession. Since illness was thought to be caused by supernatural agents, cures had to essentially be essentially supernatural as well. Every, every cure, cure was literally miraculous, and these miracles could be affected only by prayer, penance, and the assistance of the saints. To claim otherwise was heretical and blasphemous. So you begin to see some of the uh, sort of the, the, med- the sort of you could say the medical um, science status during that time, and you can see how it was repressed. In fact, look what else he says. The practice of medicine was monopolized by the church, so laymen who practiced it became what? Criminals. Remember, they removed the seventh-day Sabbath and the focus on creation and nature and the organism, and they begin to focus on the soul, the immortality of the soul, and it began to lead to some of the most unusual beliefs. Then the church stopped certain clergymen practicing it as well. Monastic medicine was prohibited by the synod of Clermont in 1130. Thenceforth, the practice of medicine was reserved to secular clergy. A generation later, in 1163, at the Council of Tours, interpreted the maxim Ecclesia abhorrent a sanguine, which means the church abhors the shedding of blood, as meaning that no churchman could practice surgery. Now you begin to see what was happening and why these great evils were taking place. Some of you are still asking yourself, wait a minute, what does the Sabbath have to do with atheism? Let's keep going. Cures were still carried out using exorcism, consecrated bells, relics, biblical uh, readings, holy water, and torture. The insane were still regarded as possessed by evil spirits. When Joanne Weyer explained that mental illness was the real course underlying the symptoms that had been attributed to witches and evil spirits, the church denounced him and his book was placed on the index. He himself was accused of witchcraft and was obliged to flee for his life. In fact, take a look at this. Freelance anatomy for original research was illegal. Scientists like Leonardo da Vinci were obliged to carry on their anatomical research in secret. That's why when you take a look at Leonardo da Vinci's book, uh, Advances, he wrote a lot of things in secret. Mirror writing. He hid some of his discoveries within his artwork because he understood that when thinking people came along, they would be able to see what he was up to. But not during his time. Leonardo's famous mirror writing was used to disguise his findings in case the church authorities found out about them. His notes were not published for more than 200 years after his death. Michelangelo was another secret... Uh, and, oh, my goodness. Yeah, animus. Okay. Uh, he apparently managed to work some of his anatomical discoveries into his art, including the creation of Adam, a section of his fresco in the Sistine Chapel. In fact, when you take a good look at that creation portrait of, of God extending his finger to Adam, what most people don't know about is that the human brain is actually diagrammed in that painting. But he knew that those who studied anatomy would be persecuted. So he had to hide much of his work. 
Here's some more information. Bishops license all manner of medical practice from surgery to physics and midwifery, which gave them control of all these disciplines. Bloodletting was still the standard treatment for all manner of ills in the 16th century and would continue to be for another three centuries. Anyone who suggested that the ancient Hippocratic medical techniques might be superior risked charges of heresy. When Pierre Brassat of Paris advocated Hippocratic techniques, he was considered a worse heretic than Martin Luther. Professor of medicine of, looks like baloney, but it's not, used skin grafts for plastic surgery. He was charged with impiety, and his rhinoplasty surgeries were prohibited. His technique was not revived until 1822. Sometimes it is difficult to tell what advances might have been made in Christissimo. I'm not Italian, so some of those words, I just, they're outside my vocabulary. We'll just say Christ rest. A work for which he was burned at the stake in 1553, Michael Servetus mentioned pulmonary circulation, realizing the function of the lungs three generations before William Harvey, who is now generally credited with discovering the circulation of the blood. By the Middle Ages, medicine had regressed on all fronts in Christian lands. Muslims who came into contact with Christians, as Usama of Shazer did during the Crusades, were shocked. Why were they shocked? By the crudity of their medicine. And it was not only medicine, but public health too. Whereas Muslims adopted public baths and insisted on washing before meals, Christians adopted the view that it was wrong to wash. It was flying in the face of God to presume to clean off his honest Christian filth. Christians were obliged to accept the will of God and the disease and misery that went with it. Queen Elizabeth I was famously said to have bathed twice a year, whether she needed to or not. I don't care if she's a queen. I, am not, I would never go into a room like that, someone like that. You see what I'm saying? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to see what's taking place. Because of some of the heresies that entered into the early church, it completely began to lead to breakdowns in other systems. Systems of philosophical thought, of medical advancement, of scientific exploration. Many of these systems were disrupted, and you begin to see the evil things that begin to take place. And you know where this all culminated? Where it all began to come to its final, just to the apex, where it just finally began to break the, the civilization at that time? It was during the Black Plague. The Black Plague. What happened during the Black Plague? You had the ship Messina, which showed up at this particular port in 1348. It was a plague ship. And the people said, no, 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 you're not coming on board. But you know what else, what they led on board? The supplies, which had rats and their fleas. And essentially, the bubonic plague began just to cause horrific casualties. And I want you to understand how intense this was. We are not talking about a few thousand people who were killed by this black plague. We are talking just in a matter of months, 30 million people dying. And you know how far it went up to? 200 million people died because of the black plague. Because of the black plague. It's that bad. Half of England was wiped out. You would think, okay, half of the United States being wiped out, that is just, uh, just horrific to think of something like that. Imagine England, half of it was wiped out by the Black Plague. In fact, look what uh, this information sheet says right here. What we have come to call the plague was brought to a merchant ship from Tana in Crimea to Messina in Sicily in the year 1347. The ship contained rats that were infected with the disease. The disease took many forms. The bubonic plague carried by fleas on the rats attacked the lymphatic gland system and caused swelling. Pneumonic plague attacked the lungs and was more devastating. The plague, called the Black Death, went through Sicily to Italy and then throughout Europe and England. It reached the entire continent by 1350. During these years, the population dropped by as much as 50%. In some locations, much higher. The plague continued to exist in the 15th century and less intensity in the 16th and 17th century. Now watch what, uh, uh, you take a good look at some of the artwork that was being um, used to describe. There was just bodies everywhere. Filth everywhere. The corpses over there. And they didn't even know what to do with them. But here's where this begins to become very interesting. 
The historians note at that time that basic rudimentary procedures would have saved millions from dying. In fact, look what Tonstead says right here. Historians of medicine have looked to the prevailing Christian view of the world at that time as a contributing factor. The unfathomable disaster could not be attributed to accident. Scholars account for the absence of even rudimentary insights by the fact that the universities at that time were under the jurisdiction of the church, which was suspicious of discovery and novelty. Compared to theology, medicine was seen as a secondary science. Thus, medieval understanding was hamstrung by its most basic belief. Discovery was outlawed. Medical scientific advances outlawed. No more study of the creationism. It was seen as evil because the Sabbath was now dropped. And sure enough, what took place were some of the greatest evils that led to millions losing their lives. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. When God says something in his word, we ought to listen to it. It's for our own good. Amen? And what you had at the end of the 1700s, with all this, this, the Middle Ages coming to end, you begin to see a group of people who begin to rise up in this movement called the French Revolution. And it was a group of thinkers and politicians and philosophers and even Roman church priests who were so upset at all the things that were taking place, they begin to rise up and they begin to say, we no longer believe in this God, we no longer want this religion, and millions, thousands begin to be beheaded during that time. They were so upset with everything that was taking place, they called for a revolution. In fact, what is very interesting, the great controversy talks about how even many of the priests who were supposed to be loyal to God turned their back on God. The constitutional bishop of Paris was brought forth to play the principal part in the most impudent and scandalous farce ever acted in the face of a national representation. He was brought forward in full procession to declare to the convention that the religion which he had taught so many years was in every respect a piece of priestcraft craft, which had no foundation either in history or sacred truth. He disowned in solemn and explicit terms the existence of the deity to whose worship he had been consecrated and devoted himself in future to the homage of, li homage of liberty, equality, virtue, and morality. He then laid on the table his Episcopal decorations and received a fraternal embrace from the president of the convention. Several apostate priests followed in the example of this prelate. Men publicly defied the king of heaven. Like sinners of old, they cried, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Psalm 73, verse 11. With blasphemous boldness, almost beyond belief, one of the priests of the new order said, God, if you exist, avenge your injured name. I bid you defiance. You remain silent. You dare not launch your thunders. Who after this will believe in your existence? What an echo of this is, is this of the Pharaoh's demand, who is Jehovah that I should obey, that I should obey his voice? I know not Jehovah. This is what Ravi Zacharias says. Historically, the real growth of atheism is to be dated from the 18th century. The French Revolution propelled atheism to center stage. For many in modern Europe, a religion was an oppressor. Atheism was a liberator. There is an important point to be learned here. Where the church is seen to be on the side of ordinary people, atheism has relatively little appeal. Still, the cultural appeal of atheism often seems to be determined by its social context rather than by anything intrinsic to its ideas. Where religion is said to oppress, confine, deprive, and limit, atheism is lauded for offering humanity a larger vision of freedom. And this is what we are warned about. We are warned that one day the church and the state will unite and it will lead to some egregious errors. And the great controversy will culminate at the end of time. And we will see freedom lost. We will see freedom lost. And we are warned about it. But ladies and gentlemen, if there ever is a time to follow the word of God, it is now. Can you say amen to that? 
And here we begin to see from the French Revolution began to lead to other individuals, other ideas. You had individuals like Thomas Paine who began to write some of the most vociferous things about God and people like Voltaire who began to denounce God and say the Bible would be an obsolete book in a hundred years from now. You had individuals like Charles Darwin who right around that time, at the end of that time into the 1840s, began to just come up with these wild theories that the world came about through natural selection, through and that mankind is nothing but an ape. You also had individuals like Marx, Karl Marx, who began to really press this idea of a, a type of communism, a place without religion or the oppression of man. You have individuals like Friedrich Nietzsche, who was called the undertaker of God, who talked about the God is dead movement. You had individuals like Stalin, who actually carried atheism to its logical conclusion, murdering millions. And you had individuals like today, um, Richard Dawkins. And here you begin to see something so important. During the Dark Ages and Middle Ages, they wanted a religion that had nothing to do with medicine or science. And then the pendulum swung, and now you have a science and uh, the medical world that wants nothing to do with God. Please say amen if you're tracking me right now. Here you begin to see something so important from history. By the removal of what God has instituted, it has led to some of the most unusual, chaotic, and evil movements that exist today. But if there ever is a time to follow God and be faithful, it's now. The book Great Controversy makes one of the most strongest, succinct statements right here. It was popery that had begun the work which atheism was completing. The work that took place in the removal of the institutions that God set up. You know what G.K. Chesterton, who said who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, he says, before you remove a fence, ask why it was put there in the first place. Are you tracking with me? Before you remove a fence, ask why it was put there to begin with. If God instituted something in the Ten Commandments, ask yourself, wait a minute, we need to be careful if we try to change this. Ladies and gentlemen, we are upsetting natural dynamics that God has set up in the creation of this world, in the fabric of life and existence, and by the change or manipulation of what God has set up, it can only lead to death, decay, degeneration, and pain and heartache. But we have a mission. We have a very special mission. In a world today that is full of a lot of agnostics and atheists and people who want nothing to do with God, we need to bring back something that is appealing that can draw them back to God. Ladies and gentlemen, what is intrinsic or what is inherent in every person's heart are very eternal things. The Bible even says God has put eternity in the heart of man. And then when we reproduce these things that we know from the word of God, it will draw people in and they will begin to know the God that has been hidden from them for so many years. And the lies will begin to be dispersed. As Seventh-day Adventists, we have been given two special principles in our missionary work. We have the beautiful principle of the seventh-day Sabbath, a day of rest. And let me tell you, regardless if you're an atheist or agnostic or whatever background you come from, the Sabbath has beautiful appeal. Can you say amen to that? Even if you're a Baptist pastor. Amen? amen? It has a beautiful appeal. And when you begin to practice the Sabbath the way it was meant to, and you begin to invite people through experience more than teaching into that Sabbath time, they will begin to be drawn to that experience. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to follow God's ways. Can you say amen to that? But also, when you take a good look at the life of Christ, you begin to see something very interesting. Look what the Bible says in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. A lot of times we look at the life of Christ and we say two things Jesus did. He did evangelism and he did miracles. Here's what I want you to understand. The goal of that miracles or those miracles was healing. That's important. Some people say, well, I can't do that because I can't do any miracles. I can't say to Royce, your cough is gone. 
boom, and it's gone. We can't say that. But you see, miracles were just an avenue to lead to the destination, and that destination was healing. And so part of Jesus' ministry was healing. And if we're going to be like Christ, then we need to reinsert this beautiful principle in reaching people. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to ask a question right now. How many people here are medical missionaries? Just raise your hand. Wow. I didn't ask how many people here were doctors. I didn't ask how many people here were nurses. I didn't even ask you if you had a degree in science. I asked how many people here are called to be medical missionaries. How many people here are being called to be medical missionaries? In other words, to bring a message of health and healing to people. How many people here? That's a little bit better. I just keep refining until it's every one of us, including the people outside in the lobby. What we are called to do is present a very beautiful message of health. And let me tell you something. That message of health is so appealing and attractive to anybody regardless of their belief or lack thereof. Thinking people, we're told, will come to our health institutions and they will be blown away by the messages of health that we have because health is important to everybody. Everyone bleeds. Everyone's got red blood in them or blue blood before it comes out and it becomes oxygen and it becomes red blood. Everyone has a heart. Even if that heart's robotic, spacemaker, you have a heart. You've got a brain. You've got a body. Everyone has common denominators. And through the message of health, even thinking people who want nothing to do with God can be reached by this message. You're saying to yourself, wait a minute, I know, but I am not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I have no education in reaching people with the message of health. I eat Big Franks. Does that count? There's more to the health message than eating Big Franks. Can you say amen to that? Or tofu. Amen? Part of the message of health is showing people where they can find healing. Now, I, grew, I was somebody who grew up in Southern California. I have uh, two sisters who are doctors. One of them is also married to an ER doctor, relatives who are doctors. Indians in the medical community, it's just the same thing. They're one in one, you know. So, and so, like, I grew up this way. My dad had three heart attacks. I grew up as a vegetarian. But here's the thing I begin to understand. That oftentimes what I was finding out in the medical community couldn't help me with the problems. They were simply masking them. And when I began to learn about natural ways of healing and help, I was so shocked. In fact, I need to get a, um, an unsuspect. Well, he is suspecting this. I need to get Ed home. Dr. Ed home. We're going to use Dr. Ed home right now. Dr. Ed Holm, can you come up to the front? Dr. Ed Holm is going to be my, I don't want to say victim, he is going to be my sick patient. Huh? Uh, you guys can kind of help you up here. Uh, take a seat. Young man, I'll get you warmed up. Do you know one day, it was about two years ago, I was really sick at an evangelistic series. I was preaching it. On the day that I was supposed to preach about the state of the dead, you know how important that is, and about hellfire the next day, I was deathly sick. I don't get sick very much, but I got so sick, I could get out, hardly get out of bed, and I was like, oh, I can't do this. And I was taking some Tylenol. I was taking some other medicine. was doing nothing for me. I had some medical missionaries show up. They did some unusual things for me. You want to know what they did? They didn't just take water and sprinkle it on my face and say, Be gone! You know what they begin to do? They begin to do some unusual things. I was so shocked when it was happening to me, but I shouldn't be shocked. Stuff has already been given to us. I sat down in that chair and I felt so weak. And you know what they did? They took a warm blanket, just like this. You're going to sweat, brother. And they just like wrapped me in this warm blanket. It kept me snuggling. I was like, that's not so bad. That's not so bad. I wasn't feeling better. It was about midnight this was happening. And so then they said, we also need to cover your head. 
cover your head too. So I go, are you sure? Okay, so they covered my head just like this. Thank you, young man. And then I was like, okay, that's not so bad. That's not so bad. And then they, they took off my shoes just like this. And these are not nurses or doctors. These are normal people. And uh, they put my... Doctors are normal people too. And they put my feet in this bucket that had hot water. Everything was nice. I was like, this is hydrotherapy? Like, yeah. Everything was great. But that's when it started to happen. You see, what they did is, as the water started cooling off, they started to put warm water in again, as warm as I can get it. Everything was good for about three minutes. I was like, I don't see how this is going to help me. And they kept putting more warm water in it. Ten minutes later, something started happening. I started to feel my temperature rise. My temperature started rising. And I was like, it's getting a little hot in here. And they're like, no, no, you need to keep this on. Okay, and I was really sick. And they're like, no, no, you need to keep it on. And so I was like, all right. Everything was all cool, you know, up to that point. And they kept, when the water cooled off, they kept putting warm water in it. And they kept the temperature of the water going higher and higher. And I was like, all right, all right. And, you know, and I was like starting to, I know I have a good threshold. Threshold. I mean, I can handle pain most of the time. And so I was there, and it was getting hotter and hotter. And I was like telling them, I was like, you know, I'm starting to feel very uncomfortable here. And they said, don't you worry. You're going to feel uncomfortable just for a little bit. But you're going to feel so much better in a short while. And I was like, all right. And so they kept putting warm water in there. 20 minutes came by, and I was like, all right, that's cool. And then, like, it started getting hotter and hotter, and I started feeling uncomfortable. And they said, you just got to hold on. You just got to hold on. And then what they did, as I was getting so uncomfortable, they took some cold water, and they put it over my face just like this. And it kept me a little cool, and I was good for about a couple more minutes. And then I started heating up more and more and more, and I was like, all right, everybody. I was like, when is this going to end? It's not working on me. I was just getting hotter and hotter. And finally, I was getting to a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I almost felt like crying. And so it was just getting so intense. And finally said, all right, I think you've reached that point. I was like, threw off all the clothes just like that. And not the clothes, but the blankets. I threw off the blankets, and I raced over to the bathroom, and I just splashed some cold water on my face. And I just walked over to the bed, and I just went into a kneeling position, prayer, and I fell asleep on the bed for a minute like this. One minute. And I was like, huh. I stood up. The strangest thing, I felt incredibly better. I was like, what do you know? And I walked into the room. I'm like, hey, everybody. And they're like, I worked. And I was like, yeah, I feel so much better. I said, I've been trying to take medication the last couple days, but what in the world's happened? And they said, through the use of water therapy, natural uh, treatments, the red blood cells, white blood cells, and ox, everything was being called out, and it was helping me so much, and it was just heating up the, or heating up my body, and my body was able to fight so much better. In just a moment of, a matter of minutes, I felt incredibly better, which medicine wasn't able to do. And I was able to preach some of the most powerful sermons I've ever preached during those two, two days, during that weekend. And I realized that God sent medical missionaries to me when I needed it. There are so many natural therapies and remedies that we are not looking at and the rest of the world is starting to discover. But these things that have already been given to us, ladies and gentlemen, if we take them and we will find ourselves able to reach anybody... Anybody, because anybody who needs help will desire, and that opens the door for you to be able to share the message of the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? Ladies and gentlemen, if there ever is a time for us to become medical missionaries and to know what God wants us to learn and to discover, it is now. You don't have to be a nurse. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to have even a medical background. I really want to challenge you to study this out. And to just start praying that God can make you a powerful witness. Can you say amen to that? There ever is a time for us to be faithful and to learn these beautiful things. It is now and it will increase your witness a hundredfold. Amen? The healthcare systems can't solve our problems anymore. Medicine, pharmacies can't solve our problems. God is calling us back to understand and study things out. Amen? 
Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord. You have given us so many things that we can use to reach the world. And Lord, you're just calling us to make ourselves available, to seek out and understand what the world needs to know right now, and that is there is a message of health physically, mentally, and spiritually. But God, many of us feel so inadequate and inexperienced. But Lord, we know you can teach us. Thank you, God. Bless each person. May they go out inspired and seeking for ways they can help bless people. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.